friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a great show lined up for you today. As per usual, we revisit with Bishop-elect Bill Byrne, who wrote a great book based on his blogs called Five Things with Father Bill, and he has some great advice for all Catholics, but especially for us as we are entering into the Advent season. But first, many people follow Edward Penton's reporting on all things Vatican for the National Catholic Register. He's been on top of the long-awaited McCarrick report that came out in November. Over 400 pages of the Vatican's assessment of ex-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and accounts of clergy sex abuse against children and sexual activity with seminarians. It's a heavy and ugly topic, but one that is very important as many are feeling frustrated and concerned about the state of our church. So, good afternoon, Edward. Thank you for taking time to join us today. Good to be with you, Gracia. So, Edward, we, we wanted to ask you on to talk to us about the McCarrick Report. I have to confess to you that I have only leafed through it because, for two reasons. Number one, it's over 400 pages long, and I, I have a family I have to care for. <laughs> and number two, yeah. I was disheartened. I've been disheartened about the McCarrick situation for a long time. My heart wasn't up to reading the report. And so, we've asked you to come and talk to us because, of course, you have read it and, and you understand it. So why were we waiting so long for this report and what was it supposed to achieve? Right. Well, it was really um, made, uh, it was to really understand how, at least this is what we were told, how he, he related with the Holy See and how can uh, help and abetted him rise up through the ranks of the church and uh, despite the allegations against him. And it was really aimed, I think, at uncovering the uh, documents pertaining to that but as time went on they actually the can actually decided to interview people relevant people involved who are still alive of course who could actually give more more information and, and shed more light on how how he rose to become uh, the most powerful in in America and um, also in the world as Archbishop of Washington so that's that's basically it and uh, the reason why it took a while I think um, at least what we know from the Vatican is that there were uh, so many witnesses they had interviewed over 90 of them and some of the still uh, tricked through up until um, I believe quite late this year and so they didn't want to produce the report incomplete without these being included now there are also other um, suspicions too that the the timing was uh, time to come out and to coincide with the with the elections there are also two other sexual abuse stories on the same day it came out so that as well I think they perhaps wanted that as a distraction from it but also I think the, the delays they not a report they obviously were proud of they didn't really want to, to do it but they had to and and as uh, those are the reasons why I think it took a bit longer than expected so the object uh, correct me if I'm wrong but the object was not so much to dig deep into the horrors that were perpetrated by McCarrick but really to understand how they were allowed to continue for so long and how he was allowed to grow to go from strength to strength 
and as you say, become such a powerful man. Like, who really was responsible for shutting their eyes and, and turning their face away? Yes, right. And I think there's been a few misconceptions about the report. I think a lot of people felt it was going to be a real invention, um, getting right to the bottom of everything and, and how, you know, uh, every single aspect of McCarrick and, and his life and, and everything else and who he knew and his financial connections and everything. But in the end, it wasn't that. It was it was simply, as I say, it was trying to uncover how he was, um, how he got up through, through the ranks. And there are, there are gaps in it, though. And of course, people are concerned that there's that those who are living today in the, in the, in the hierarchy who, who owe their positions to McCarrick aren't really mentioned in the report. And so there's so that gap as well. So it's there, although, you know, this, uh, I say this, the scope of this wasn't that wide. It was really, as I say, to look at that aspect of him, but not necessarily his connections and various other, other, other aspects connected to McCarrick. And as we said before, it was it's an over 400 page report. But if you could say in just a few sentences, if you did, if you could distill the report and say what was wrong with the church that he was able to grow like that and to and to achieve so much. I think one of the key aspects and the most disturbing which I've, I've written about is uh, is the fact that uh, even though many people knew about um, McCarrick's his behavior with seminarians, particularly in young priests, sharing beds in, in beach houses and so forth, these were kind of ignored. Uh, well, they were ignored and they were, even though also two bishops were, uh, somebody gets to me that uh, he was a company of two bishops, saw McCarrick groping a seminarian at dinner and, and got up and left, but said, but then when they were asked to give testimony to the nuncio to see whether he was able for the Archbishop Archdiocese of Washington, they said they they felt in good moral standing and they basically didn't say anything about that. Didn't. So these different things, these different aspects of, of neglect, I think are what's key in this document. This is what it, what uh, shines through, and that it, in a sense it begs questions about what, why the hierarchy bishops were so kind of um, indifferent to this sort of behaviour, didn't get a sort of free pass, weren't that concerned about it. And it was only when it was a, a minor involved that they actually took serious action. So the, the, these are, I think, the main questions that the the, um, that the document raises, and as Cardinal Raymond Burke said, as, as this will know, he's an expert in canon law. He said he wondered why there were no canonical measures earlier on when when these when this behaviour was going on with seminarians and so forth. Why were there no alarms alarm bells ringing then and and canonical and then and what what seems to be clear is that the measures taken were always inadequate. They were never really sufficient. They weren't they weren't going to really bring it to line. And um, and so what you what you get from this report is a serious failure from the higher to really take the necessary steps to, to bring McCarrick into line and, and, and to further this, his, his rise up the ranks. Yeah. And is this failure, does it have its foundation in, a, in, in sort of a, a, an acceptance of homosexual behavior in priests, that they that these are adults, that these are adult men behaving this way and, and we can wink mm. at it and, and pretend it's not happening? Is that where the foundation lies? Well, I, I think that's what it what it shows. Uh, there's no, it obviously doesn't spell out that fact, but I think what you can see the lines of these different stories is that because perhaps there's a certain prevalence of this in going on in in the in the church in seminaries and so and and elsewhere that this that they felt that there was they didn't there wasn't the will necessarily to tackle this uh, strongly strongly enough and uh, it seems to have been there seems to be a lot of compromising going on because there was one can sort of put together because there was this sort of this tacit acceptance of such behaviour at least not that serious as 
sort of um, mild misdemeanors. Um, that's the message you get through this. Uh, but but that's that can come from this. That uh, that that sort of reaction is obviously not sufficient, and 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 I think they'll they'll think that stronger action can if this happens again. Is this something that regular lay people, lay Catholic Americans, will find shocking reading it because maybe lay people are more innocent than the bishops <laughs> as far as <laughs> priests' uh, activities? Well, uh, yes. I mean, there are some very disturbing passages in there. That, that mention of the bishops is one of them. But, it's, it, yeah, it's it's not a pleasant reading. But I think that a, a slightly, um, uh, what would one say, daunted view, I suppose, or rather a, not a fair view, really, of what the church is like. I mean, this is still, I think, a, a minority. But at the same time, uh, one's often heard of this, this this goes on in seminaries, certain seminaries, and, and so it's not it's certainly not without foundation but how widespread it is it's anyone's guess but i but yeah it's not not something you really want to to read unless, um, unless you're you, you're really interested in in finding out what actually happened and it's not the most wholesome reading certainly i would say do you think it turns out that in american seminaries there's different kinds of seminaries or, or there was a time in which these kinds of behaviors were winked at in certain seminaries and then they had i know and here in florida we had a i did hear the stories of one particular seminary where people assume this kind of thing was going on because of the way the mm. seminarians behaved and, and there were rumors and whispers but I haven't heard that in a long time do you think that there was a time in American history in the last couple of decades when those things were more winked at and more allowed and, and hopefully we've grown out of that it could be I mean I've, I've heard that there have been improvements made in different places what I've heard sort of on the grapevine here in in Rome but it, it crosses you know left and right although one doesn't really want to use those terms but but those sort of more orthodox semin seminaries also have been affected by this the Holy Apostles Seminary of course in uh, Connecticut which had this going on that was considered to be an orthodox one and and others too and so it crosses both sides and uh, uh, I think my own sort of uh, sort of very much connected with the society that we live in today as well and that's where where this sort of thing is except um, and so it's seen to be acceptable also in seminaries and that's but but there has been improvement in recent years I don't know how I have no real empirical evidence of that but that seems to be the case and and so it, it apparently what happened then with McCarrick with uh, is that when it became uh, apparent that he had not he hadn't held himself back to just seven young men <laughs> young priests and seminarians but he had mm. gone further into the lower ages uh, for his depredations that is when people finally sat up and took notice is that true that's right well that's when the pope uh, that's that the archdiocese of new york then made it known and they, they obviously informed the pope and the pope then took action pretty much straight away uh to to take him away from the cardinal the college of cardinals and then and then laicize him so yeah that was when the serious action was taken but it's uh again it, it's just i think that people will find it strange that it was only until then that the serious action and of course it was very serious it was there was a, the sin in the confessional too apparently according to the congregation of the doctrine of the so it was very very grave but but even so it's grave all, all the way through I would say and you mentioned the word Pope and one of the things that, that people have been waiting for the document for was to understand which of the popes was was uh, knowledgeable about what was going on who had been informed mm. who hadn't been informed who acted and who didn't act what, what did you come away with reading the report Yes, well, I mean, it does seem to be a lot of the, the lion's share of the blame on, on John Paul and 
And in a sense, there is there is culpability there because it was John Paul II who promoted him. He, he uh, McCarrick rose through the ranks most, uh, under John Paul II. It was John Paul who appointed him to Washington, D.C., despite receiving evidence that of, of these misdemeanors and this, this misconduct and abuse from the past. Now, he was, you could argue that he was deceived. He knew McCarrick going back a long way. He first met him in on a trip to the United States when he was still a cardinal. Um, John Paul did uh, back in the 1970s. struck up a good rapport with him. So he knew him for a long time. He trusted him. And when the evidence was given that he could not become uh, Archbishop of Washington, McCarrick found out about this and then he went through Cardinal Juvet, uh, John Paul Secretary, and uh, all of this is, is completely false. And of course, um, Cardinal Juvet believed him and then passed that on to John Paul. And then that's how he got appointed Archbishop of Washington even though John Paul had initially refused to appoint him on the basis of, of the stories that have been heard. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're getting a real look at the long-awaited McCarrick Report with Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register. He's all the way from Rome, which you might be able to tell from the quality of our connection. <laughs> <laughs> which isn't which isn't too horrible, Edward. But I wish it were a little okay. better. <laughs> uh, but Edward, you were telling us about um, the fact that Pope John Paul II initially had it, had not agreed to promote him because he had heard um, some reports of his of his sins, uh, of McCarrick's sins, and then was yes. convinced that these were lies. And, you know, I, I, of course, I didn't know Pope John Paul II uh, personally, but I, I, he had such a, a beautiful heart, and, and I imagine mm. that he must have been, it must have been hard for him to believe that someone could be so, so that a priest of God could be so dreadful in, in, in his behavior. I mean, this is, this is what we've heard so from George Wagler's biographer that found the whole abuse um, completely uh, unconscionable and something he just not really understand that anyone, especially a priest, would do. Then, of course, there was the the his upbringing communist uh, Poland where often they sort of thrown a priest to discredit them you know they were totally false so he thought this could be another case of that at least that's what we understand and uh, yes and I think he was a very good you know good hearted um, saint and he, he did not uh, uh, he put people on value very much I think um, but the other aspect too is that it wasn't too involved with the governance of the church. He wasn't that hands-on, especially with appointments. And he, he admitted that later in his life, and he regretted it. And he said that's one of his weaknesses. Um, and so so there, there is the, that. And so a lot of the culpability does lie with him, unfortunately. But, well, of course, one can sort of understand where he was coming from. Um, so, so it exonerates him a lot of, from a lot of the blame, even though uh, he was ultimately responsible. I think there's a certain... I think a lot of people understand have an understanding of this situation, um, and of course, there's Benedict too, who who tried to in, in, impose certain discipline on him and obedience that was um, largely overlooked. And uh, you could argue that it was um, uh, urgent uh, and not really followed through, and, and should have been more uh, issued more sanctions. Again, we come back to the fact that this behaviour was sort of given a, a, a very much a light touch and not given the, the sort of discipline that perhaps many feel was warranted and, and certainly it's with Benedict as well. Um, I think that what I remember, I mean, when I reported on this a couple of years ago, I mean, the, what I what I understand that Benedict's sort of view was that, well, he's, the, he's sort of 
dogs lie and he's old he was retired by the time uh, benedict uh, was in a position to sort of issue sanctions, I think, in 2006. Uh, and so he basically let him carry on, but he tried to get him to be less public and to turn away from, or rather to be quiet and, and not be so public, uh, have a live a life of prayer and penance, really. Um, but and that, that didn't really happen. And then we come to France, who, who of course, we know the allegation, you know, um, didn't uh, didn't follow through at all, and actually let him continue more of his travels and so forth until until this abuse came of a minor, and then he took serious action. But um, uh, so the onus, the, the biggest responsibility, the biggest blame, I suppose, is on John Paul, then Benedict, and Francis. If the foundations of the the lack of accountability for for McCarrick are the, if the foundations are in um, an acceptance of homosexual behavior as uh, something that can be accepted in anyone, but even priests, then does mm. Pope Francis's um, his his complicated uh, way of speaking about civil unions, for instance? That this this thing that just came up yes. recently is he now contributing to the same problem by not being more clear on, on the Catholic position and, and our values and our ideals? Well, this is that's a good question, Gracie. I mean, this is what's being said: is is you know, is he not necessary? Is he in a way perpetuating this sort of behaviour and this this these sort of mistakes by? By basically going along with um, what some argue is, is the homosexual lobby, which is for the normalisation of these, this kind of behaviour in the church, and and I think the many would argue that he is not um, he's sort of clamping down on this behaviour, though he's spoken in the past quite strongly about yes. about you know if you're if you are inclined that way, you should not be a, even look to be a priest, and you should you should not. Um, put your name forward and forth. Um, but on the other hand, he, he does these other actions which contradict that. So so there's confusing signals from France about the whole issue, it seems, um, and largely go down on the side of of um, of this kind of behavior. We have three cardinals being, um, three new cardinals being elevated to the College of Cardinals this weekend, um, and they are very sympathetic to the LGBT agenda um oh. they don't necessarily go along with it totally but they're certainly uh, friendly and simple to it and so so again you see that, that contradiction which is rather hard to uh, i think for many people find it hard to fathom uh, the, the contradictory views and actions he has on the view for many lay people, it's very disturbing this uh, lack of clarity and, and the confusing positions that he takes because many of us, like me, are trying to raise children in a society that um, extols the virtues of every kind of sexual um, exploration and experimentation and, and just any kind of sexual um, right. life when as Catholics we understand sexuality to be only properly confined within a sacramental marriage of one man and one woman and that's been the truth forever and now suddenly things are getting confusing it seems mm. and it's very hard for us to educate our children then and and try to be uh, without having the church behind us and, and 100% um, supporting us uh, as we try to teach them Yes, it, it's a sort of I suppose it's, you could argue it's cross Palian dialectic and, and sort of Jesuit uh, uh, sort of response to kind of what they would say a very complex 
issues. And so, so what you end up with is this sort of contradiction. Whereas, you know, if you ask the Pope, well, what do you believe? He would say, well, clearly, you know, this is this behavior is is said uh, before. You know, this is wrong. Uh, the, the Church is watching. On the other hand, he'll say, well, we have to deal with the company of the and deal with the people where they are. They're loved by God, whoever they are, whatever their their proclivity. And, and and so you get this this sort of dual um, uh, sort of parallel t going on, which uh, which don't really reconcile this Pagalian typical approach, which is confusing for most people. It's fine if you're a very intellectual yes. uh, professor <laughs> who knows this, um, but it's not necessarily going to pass that down to to the faithful in a in a very effective way. I think, but yeah. but who knows? I mean, you know, maybe it will, in in and history will judge it differently, but. At the moment, most people see it as very, very confusing, yeah. Here in the United States, the USCCB, uh, the United States Council of Bishops, they just happened to meet recently for their fall meeting, and I know the report was discussed. Were you following that, Edward? I haven't been able to too much, no, because I've been focusing on other things here, but uh, but I, I did hear it was well discussed, and, uh, and they came to various conclusions. Yeah, I mean, that was the other reason for the article, for the report to come out, was to time um, just before, it came out just before this meeting, of course, and I think there was a willingness to, to get it out before it, so they could discuss it. And is the Vatican, by releasing this report, have they exposed themselves to lawsuits and, and, and other attacks from uh, from outside to make maybe financial <laughs> gains uh, related yes. to all these things. Well, I see there was one court case, one case being brought to the Vatican. I don't know what happened to it. Uh, uh, this well-known um, a lawyer who often uh, takes the church, uh, Jeff uh, Jeffrey Anderson, I think it is. He he's an attorney in California, I think, who's who's taking a case to the Vatican. But I these. these don't usually go far, and I, I don't think this one, uh, I haven't heard any more from this since uh, a week ago, yeah. And where do we go from here, Edward, as a church? Like, how do we strengthen the priesthood and, and help those discerning um, their way to the priesthood while reading the horrors in this report? How does this work for us? Right, well, I mean, I think the report probably helps that in a sense that it's, I think lines are clearer that what's be acceptable and what isn't um you get that from this report so so seminarians going looking to to go into this will know well what the boundaries are i mean you know some people say well you can't just blame mccarrick for these 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 this abuse of seminarians some of the seminarians were were given two of themselves of, of of sort of you know bringing on this sort of behavior as well so fixtures of uh, and, you know both parties are involved in this too that's one aspect perhaps better uh, seminary uh, formation and, and selection um but also the way bishops are appointed that's another that's another aspect that i think could be well, a fruit of this that there's better more systematic ways of 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 really getting to to know and to properly vet bishops and that you know that, that, that those serving them uh, are fully informed and know uh, who they're appointing. Another aspect to come from this, certainly from people I've spoke to here feel that way. Um, cardinals and, and bishops here have said this and that this could be one 
one way to uh, help improve that that system. You know, just a week before the re- the report was released, there was a seismic shift in the way that the Vatican Secretariat of State operates with regard to finances, which I have trouble following because I don't really understand the Vatican finances to start with. Right. But was there any connection, do you think, between the two events, the report and the financial changes? Um, I don't know. We can only speculate. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, the timing is not coincidental, that it's sort of perhaps to throw up a smoke screen about something else, which is um, attractive and they want to divert. And I don't know whether that's true. I, you could argue it. I doubt it somehow. I think th- these things happen t- kind of randomly. They're not, uh, they can't always be predicted. And, um, the financial scandals we know have been going on for quite a while now here in the Vatican, uh, and uh, and there's new revelations every every week, um, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, there, there's certainly a problem though that 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 um, being looked at. This is, this is of course one of the Pope's key mandates: tidy up the finances in the Vatican. And there's uh, arguments for and against whether he's done that well. Um, quite a few against really they feel that uh, he he's uh, he's backed the wrong people and then ended up uh the right people but too late uh but uh, yeah that's 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 other issue though but uh, i don't think there's probably a connection between the two but you know there may may well be who knows right in the byzantine <laughs> quarters exactly of, of yeah. the vatican one can only speculate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Edward, we, our time is almost up, but I wanted to ask you, what's it like in Rome these days? Well, it's it's not too bad. I mean, in terms of worship, uh, there aren't that many restrictions. Uh, some some closed here, uh, but mostly they're open and masses are continuing pretty much normal, of course, with all the, the, the social distancing and the masks. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, those things are normal in that sense. On a on a civil level, uh, on the sort of daily day to day level, things are pretty. We have uh, masks have to be worn outside. You have to the restaurants are shut and there's curfew from ten to five in the in the ten p.m. till five in the morning. So it's oh. it's pretty strict, really. It's um, I mean, I, I never thought I'd experience a curfew, but but we've got that. I just thought that was a sort of last thought when there was a really bad emergency, but that's what we've got. So yeah, it's pretty it's pretty serious. Well, I hope that things get better in Rome soon, Edward. Here in the United States, we're also experiencing lots of things that we didn't expect to experience. And thank you so much for your insights and your candor for on such a heavy but important topic for everyone. Listeners should always keep up with all things Vatican by reading Edward Penton's work at the National Catholic Register. And again, thank you very much, and we hope to have you back again soon. Sure. Thanks, Gracie. Always good to talk to you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-host and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. We're very happy to have Father Bill Byrne with us. He's now Bishop-elect Byrne to discuss his new book called Five Things with Father Bill, Hope, Humor, and Help for the Soul. Father Bill is a well-known YouTube personality and columnist. Welcome, Father, to Conversations with Consequences. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Father Bill, we are so grateful you're able to talk to us today. We know you have a lot on your plate right now because you just got a phone call from (laughs) Papal Nuncio informing you that Pope Francis is appointing you to be the Bishop of Springfield, Massachusetts. So we want to hear about that phone call. And having known you as Father Bill for about 10 years, I want to know when do we start calling you your eminence? Well, that would be for a while. That would be only if I were ever made a cardinal. So we start with Your Excellency, which is kind of oh, ironic. <laughs> That's right. I think because I think the thing I'm probably most excellent is making an Alamatriciana pasta sauce. Um, <laughs> so that limits me. But I did on the feast of the guardian angels of all things. My guardian angel must have had a sense of humor. I got a call, and a two hundred two number popped up on my phone, and of course I didn't answer it because you don't answer things if you don't know the number. <laughs> and then it went to voicemail. I was like, ooh, who's that? And then there was this French accented voice of Christophe. This is Archbishop Christophe Pierre. And he said, Father Bill Byrne, please call me at your earliest convenience. And I was immediately, my hand started to shake. <laughs> like, holy moly. And so I got a, I called him back and he said, Nice weather we're having here, isn't it? <laughs> like, uh, let's cut to the chase. Because I know you're not, I didn't say this, but my thought bubble was, I know you're not calling me for decorating advice or, you know, the right <laughs> word for, for this paragraph. And he said, the Holy Father wants to name you. And then there was a pause. And I'm a, a bishop of, and I'm like, where, where, where? And then he said, Springfield in Massachusetts. And I'd gone to school 45 minutes west of that. So I was kind of sort of familiar with it from years back. But I'm very excited to, for the trust that the Holy Father has placed in me in this new duties. Wow. Well, it, it's such a sign of hope for the church, although we, your parishioners, are just heartbroken. You will be missed by so many of us, especially my children. My daughters actually burst into tears when they heard that Father Bill was leaving. But really, honestly, it was no surprise to us because you're such a wonderful and holy priest and you're so gifted in inspiring vocations and so gifted in uh, communicating the faith, which brings us to your book. So five things with Father Bill, hope, humor and help for the soul. We hope all of our listeners will pick up a copy for themselves, maybe order multiple copies. It's a great Christmas gift, great gift for any occasion, really. But but tell us, what led you to write this book? It began as a, a series of uh, columns that I had written in our Catholic Standard newspaper, and I had done it for years, and suddenly it thought, I thought, wow, these could be a book. And uh, your neighbor and my old friend from high school and college, Mark Shiro, was the one who he hounded me. And not, it's not like suggested. It was more like I, he wouldn't talk about anything else until I actually did it. And, I, and so uh, Loyola Press, I put them all together and Loyola Press tidied them up and put some awesome illustrations. And uh, it went, it was released the day after I was named a bishop. <laughs> Talk about a week. Wow. You know, Father Bill, the, I love the organization of the book because lists are a very practical way of organizing. That's how we organize our minds 
experience in many ways. And I like that each chapter of the book gives us five different things to focus on. I find that very practical and also something that really reaches into into the way that um, into the way that we organize ourselves mentally. So we can sort of handle little bits of information and then put that into action. And I also think what I what I really tried to show in uh, throughout each chapter of the book and each one of illustration is that God is constantly speaking to us. And that we can, you know, we fine tune that by spending time before in church, before the Lord. But then we start to see his, it's almost as if he's playing this beautiful music all around us. And we can notice him in, by listening to our heart. And when, and that's what I, I wanted to illustrate to people is just how God speaks to me in these multiple ways through when I make up my own mysteries of the rosary or think about my dog and how my dog acts. That's what I was really hoping for people to experience. One of the first sections that I read was the section on the dog. It says, uh, things I learned from my dog. And I guess I I read it first because it's the first chapter. (laughs) Yeah. But it really called to my, it called my attention because we bought our our daughter, our youngest daughter, we bought her a COVID, we're calling a COVID puppy because she spent many months alone. (laughs) And so we've been raising this puppy for the last three months. And it's a puppy, a, a dog is a charm thing and and it really spoke to me how you connected that the kind of love that dogs exhibit their the the acceptance that they show and the the wonderful tolerance that they have for for all, for all our foibles and and well, connect I mean, that to the God the way God relates to us in some ways so the, the there's also a chapter on puppies and uh, because I think my experience unless your puppy is different than any of mine is that at first you don't experience this over dramatic love for the dog you sort of wade your way through diminishing regret you know <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you as you when regret you your carpets that, you that regret shoe. the state the state of your carpets <laughs> and the pillows that throw pillow you loved has you know now been gnawed on or uh, and then eventually as the dog is you the dog and you grow together then it's then it becomes much more fun so hang in there (laughs) so so the book title comes from your columns you mentioned and it's organized in these short little chapters which i love because i feel like in our age of technology all of our attention spans seem to have gotten a little shorter so the there are 50 short little chapters but the common theme seems to be about really embracing joy. It has such a joyful tone. So tell us, why is this so important for us Catholics? And you're just uniquely talented in conveying that joy. What's the secret of your your joy? I think, well, part the secret of my joy, of course, is the Lord, knowing how well I'm loved and how well we all are loved, that we were planned from the beginning, that before we were born, He knew our name and called us to our mother's womb. You know, that's a that's a powerful and unique experience. And if we can open our minds and hearts to that. But I also, when people ask me how I am, I say, I'm fantastic. And, and it's because I have to, we have to decide to be joyful. It's happiness is not a is not a destination we get through when I get this job or when I get that. Happiness is the byproduct of living the good life mm-hmm. and doing the good. And so if we seek to fill each day with that and put our priority list in order, then you're going to be joyful, even if you are in the most challenging situations. You know, I always say to myself, and I think about this, I think of you moms when your kids were little and it's they're, they're four years old and in the coughing and you've got the shower running and they've got the group or whatever it is. And you've got a busy day the next day, but you're still there. You don't want to be there, 
but you wouldn't be anyplace else mm-hmm. in the world. <laughs> and so that experience is like, I don't want to be here, but I have to be here because this is where the Lord's asking me to be. Mm-hmm. Such great perspective. Father Bill, in your homilies, you so often make a great pitch for going to confession, and you have a chapter in the book about this. And I've, I've heard you make the point that Catholics get this bad rap for the the idea of Catholic guilt. But in reality, you say that we're the faith that has this sacrament to be rid of guilt. And you're so good at pitching confession, and you offer confession before even daily Mass, before all the Sunday Masses, which we love. So tell us about your chapter on learning to love confession. Well, you know, one of the things that, that we have to, just as an illustration, is, is I say, you, you take out the garbage in your kitchen or else it stinks after a while, you know? Well, the the sin is not who we are, it's who we're not. And so the the every time we make a decision to not be ourselves, that sort of false us grows. And in confession, the Lord wipes that away, wipes that non-you away. That, as Thomas Aquinas says, the mercy is moving from non-being to being, to being more fully alive. And so why would we want to be anything but most fully alive? And so we find ourselves repeating our sins. Well, at least you're not coming up with new ones, you know? <laughs> and... Um, Um, the power of that experience of getting rid of everything that's yucky in the kitchen. I'm kind of a a kitchen freak. I I like to go to bed with a perfectly clean kitchen to come down and to find something in the sink. I don't like to start my day that way. And so poor Father Joe and Seminary and Sean have learned, learned that. And I think it's the same way with starting our day or our week with that freshness. Father, um, We are in the month of November, and of course we pray in a very special way for our dead and um, remember them all month long. And it reminds me of your chapter on getting ready for heaven, which I liked a lot. Can you tell us about that chapter? Yeah, I... um so one of the first things to remember is is you don't want to presume heaven, you know, because if you just presume like if you presume that you, the person you love is just going to love you back, you're not loving very well, you know. And the same is true with God. If we just say, oh well, how do you get to heaven? Oh, I guess I just die. Well, what about that whole experience of relationship and love? Um, you know, one of the things uh, is also uh, this experience of prayer. So I know. My my best friend from grammar school is somebody I talk to every day or not, if not multiple times a week. And I am, when the people that you talk to every day are people that you have a conversation with, because you can say, how did your meeting go? How did that happen? You're all in each other's mix. And so the um, that experience of prayer, of being in relationship with the God who loves you so much that when you were born said, I want to be with this person forever when you were conceived before that, when you thought of you at the beginning of time. And so the, if we talk to God every day, then we have much more to talk about. It's more unlike bumping into a friend in the, in the mall that you haven't seen for two years. You've got nothing to talk about. And that can be the way. If we only chatting at Christmas and Easter, we don't have a lot to say. You know, um, always the patron saint of the happy death is St. Joseph. And, uh, and it's, it's a good thing to pray to him. Um, another thing is to remember that if you live as if this were your last day, uh, then you would live it most fully. I did a funeral, two funerals of guys that died just suddenly in their 50s. And mm. one of them, the wife said, the last thing I said to him was, I love you. Hmm. 
And I think, wouldn't it be better to say I love you as opposed to, we'll talk about this when I get home. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and to say, okay, I love you. Make sure even if you say that, you say, I love you. You know that, don't you? And so uh, that, um, so those are some of the things about getting ready for heaven. Mm-hmm. Father Bill, how about the um, the chapter on exercise your right to rest? That really struck me because I think uh, with all these pandemic lockdowns and us having more time at home and kind of getting away from that frenetic lifestyle that we're so used to, it's caused a lot of us to reevaluate that as we're sort of getting back out and about how to have better balance in our lives. Um, what are your thoughts and on that? You know what? I think is um, is key to understand is we tend to think about uh, you know that that leisure is the where great ideas come from. It's not um, it's not just it's not from just toil and working every day. But you know, where does great poetry come from? Where does great love come from? Not from frenetic energy. And so, in a way, we should be instead of resting so that we can work harder. We should be working so that we can rest better and that that's really the end and the goal because that's the resting is is where prayer happens. It's resting in the Lord. You know, our liturgical experience should be that of play, not of duty. And so if you sort of translate that, you have to um, uh, you have to plan ahead to make sure you're creating space in your week. Um, so that you're, so that Sunday is a restful day. How many of us, when we were, I don't know how, uh, when I was little, um, we, you couldn't do anything on Sunday because the stores were all closed. Mm-hmm. And, and so it wasn't like there was a lot of errands to run because of the blue laws. And how great was that? I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sports, I think now the children all have sports on Sundays and it oh, used to be a day crazy. of family rest not just one team, but multiple teams. You know, one of the things I think that uh, unless you are like a trauma surgeon, the odds are you don't need to do what you need to do on a Sunday, Mm -hmm. you know? So true. That if we, that if we really put aside, you know, the things that we think need to get done, well, then we will get them done more efficiently the next day. You know, I think it's also time to, to do what you love and what you rejoice in, you know, take a, that's when you take a walk or you grab the big paper and your frappa latte and just <laughs> lounge mm-hmm. around after you've had church and take some time to pray and say a rosary. Um, one of the things I think that can be really hard, especially in COVID is we're so socially isolated and what a great thing to do on a Sunday to, have a either go visit in the yard or have a virtual um, visit with people where you're not rushed. You're Mm -hmm. just catching up. And then, um, you know, God gives us 168 hours a week and um, 167 of them are his gift to us. The one hour that we go to mass on Sunday is our gift back to him. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it's kind of kind of a measly return if that's it. And so um, really maybe taking the time to worship God and to uh, be with him and then extend that to say, you know, as you sit around the dinner table to talk about the blessings of the week or what did you hear in the homily or um, so that you have a time to sort of break it open and just be leisurely about it. 
Mm -hmm. You're so good, too, at always uh, reminding us to really celebrate the feast days and the solemnities. You always give us a reminder. Maybe it's a good night to crack open a good bottle of wine or have a extra bite of your cheesecake or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Celebrate the feast days. Yeah, we've lost that sense um, of like also feast have a day. That exactly, right. Well, some of us. <laughs> some of us are a little too good at feasting. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. I agree. Um, you also have a chapter that deals with mass etiquette, which I think is, um, it's just interesting because we went so long watching mass online and maybe at the beginning of the pandemic, we were good about sort of the formality of that. But as time went on, we found ourselves, you know, slouching on the couch in our pajamas during online mass. So, um, so I love that you have that chapter on mass etiquette. And it's also, I think, well, the reason that I wrote that is because I had a, 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 a woman in my last parish who was there with two little kids and um, the kids were squirmy and the one of the old coots in the church said, you know, you should take them outside. Well, I found out about this. The woman left sobbing and it turns out she wasn't even Catholic. She had promised to support her husband who was raising the kids Catholic and he was a Marine fighting in Afghanistan. Oh my gosh, Father. And it's and I'm saying you never know what people's lives are about. So so one of the things to give a perspective is like, you know, the old guy who can't hear, if your kids squirmy, you might want to take the kids out. If the kids are squirmy, be grateful that they're in church at all. You know, to have give different perspectives on oh, maybe a little more empathetic experience of 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 how we view uh, each other in church. Mm -hmm. um, now, we're just about out of time here, Father, and we're so grateful for your time. But um, just a final question, a quick question on the issue of schools reopening during the pandemic, because here in our county, the public schools uh, are o only online, and you heroically fought the effort to shut down the parochial schools as well. So I really, I just want to say thank you for your leadership on opening our Catholic schools for in-person in education. And um, I, I know you're one of the people outside doing the temperature checks on the little kids. So wanted mm -hmm. to thank you for that and, um, and for your time. And we hope all of our listeners will go right onto Amazon and buy your book. That's great. Thank you very much. God bless you both, and thanks for the good work you do, okay? Thank you, Father. And we'll be Come praying up to you to head to Massachusetts, for sure. Okay. God bless you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation. The Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday when we will begin a new liturgical year. Sometimes Christians find it a little strange that in the church, New Year's Day begins on the first Sunday of Advent rather than about a month from now. But that's an indication that most of us take our cues more from balls dropping in Times Square or months decreed by Julius Caesar in 46 BC than by the life of Christ from the time where the Jews anxiously awaited his appearance in Advent proper to ultimately his return in glory, which we celebrated last week with the Solemnity of Christ the King. 
Jesus said to us over and again in the gospel, follow me. Each liturgical year we do just that, tracing his footsteps along the route of salvation history, trying to become more and more like him whom we're following. The liturgical year is never meant to be a same old, same old, but something that helps us to enter into the mysteries we celebrate far more profoundly than the last time. Like rereading a great book or watching a new or classic movie, each retracing of the life of Christ is supposed to reveal to us elements we haven't seen before and remind us of important things that we once knew but have forgotten about the mystery of God, his love for us, and his hopes and plans for us. This liturgical year is another time for us to enter into the life of Christ, to accompany him and be accompanied by him as we relive the events of his earthly life connected to ours. This may be the last liturgical year we have because we never know the day of the hour. So let's make the most of this new one that's beginning and start it off well. Jesus speaks to us very clearly in the gospel about how he wants us to start and live this year. He'll use two sets of verbs on Sunday. The first has to do with our alertness. Wake up, he shouts. Stay awake, he adds. The second set of verbs involves what we're supposed to do after we've awoken. Be constantly on guard. Be on watch. He tells us in the gospel that we should be like porters, door openers. He leaves home and places his servant in charge, Jesus describes about this porter. He orders the man at the gate to watch with a sharp eye. Look around you. You do not know when the master of the house is coming. Do not let him come suddenly and catch you asleep. Jesus wants us to be like doorkeepers. We're always awake and on guard. Here in Manhattan, where I live, many of the residences have doormen, just like hotels do in most parts of the country. And the doormen are really quite professional, not only in their appearance, but in their behavior. There are two essential parts to their job. The first is that they're always on the lookout for the arrival of any resident or guest. As soon as they see one arriving, they open the door. If the residents are returning from a trip or shopping, they help with the bags or other things needed. But they also have a second job, namely to prevent those who shouldn't be entering from doing so, something that in an age of terrorism and riots is even more crucial than normal. Jesus calls us all to be spiritual porters, good, holy doorkeepers. This involves the same two tasks. First is to be awake and alert to welcome Jesus whenever and wherever he comes, to go out and meet him when we see he's coming, as we like to say in history, mystery, and majesty, to carry his bags, to help him in any way that he needs. We meet Jesus in history in Bethlehem in the celebration of Christ, of the birth of Christ for which we prepare on December 25th. We focus on meeting Christ when he comes at the end of time or at the end of our life, whichever comes first. That's really Advent proper. But then we profit from both of these other types of spiritual preparation to meet Jesus in the present. For example, in the Eucharist, in prayer, in sacred scripture, in the various disguises he takes, like the poor, the sick, the lonely, the imprisoned, those we might consider enemies, those around us right now, or even the priest speaking to you on his behalf. We're called to be awake and alert for his presence at all times and to open up the door when he comes so that he might enter. As Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and eat with you and you with me. We're called to meet Jesus with joy, with great loving expectation, and let him come into our hearts. We're in reality temples of God's presence. God wants to dwell within us. We're called to open up our hearts to him so that he can, in fact, come and dwell. But the door has only one handle, and it's on the inside, as so much Christian artwork shows. 
Second task we have as porters is to lock the door to those who shouldn't enter, who want to enter only to do damage, harm, and destroy. The first person we need to lock it to is the devil, who seeks to come into the temple of God we are called to be and wreak all types of havoc. The devil often comes, we know, in disguise, so we have to be particularly on guard. The second thing we need to be vigilant is to lock out all forms of sin, as well as those who are trying to lead us into sin. There are certain people whose presence takes us away from God. It's not that they're necessarily bad people, but whether it be their polluted language or exaggerated worldliness or excessive desire to have us engage in worldly activity or sinful activity with them, we need to be on the lookout like a good doorman at the White House. We might add that there's a third thing that a doorman sometimes needs to do. Even if he's good at welcoming residents and guests, even if he's superbly kept out those who shouldn't enter, he likewise needs to keep the lobby clean and swept. So we have to do the same as spiritual doormen. Just like Jesus cleansed the temple, so we need to cleanse our souls. And Jesus wants to help us to do that, taking out his own broom through the sacrament of reconciliation. We don't know what will happen with COVID, and so I'd urge you not to procrastinate on the most important thing you need to do to make straight the path of the Lord into your life this Advent and make a good confession right at the beginning of Advent. So, in conclusion, Advent is meant to be a time of spiritual reawakening, of rebirth, as we return to what should be the proper foundation of our life, Christ himself, and build our life on him. We have to get up from any spiritual somnolence and stay alert in prayer. We have to get excited because the Lord is coming, and we will get excited if our hearts are truly set on him. The candles of the Advent wreath, for example, are meant to show our growing hunger for God week by week with every new candle alight. Third, have to get moving, journeying out to meet Emmanuel, our divine Messiah, who comes. Advent is a little bit like the gun at the start of a marathon that gets us to begin a spiritual sprint, to run with haste, to meet Christ in all the ways he comes. As this new liturgical year begins, after many difficult months for all of us, let us respond to God's help to make this year the best spiritual year of our life, a true year of the Lord. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 